How's everybody doing today? Good. Good? Couple of you? Let's try that one more time. You're in the house of the Lord. How are you this morning? Good. There we go. That's my church. All right. Good. So, you know, as uh, just thinking as we're moving into this season, you know, this holiday season, as we call it, and, uh, you know, as Willie prayed, just praying that we'd all be very sensitive and, and uh, as we celebrate, also understand that other people are hurting, you know? And the beauty of this family, this, this church family, this community is, is that, you know, we can, we can mourn and rejoice together. Amen? Amen? And so let's make sure we do that, you know? So this morning, I'm going to beat you up a little bit. You were here last week. I beat you up last week a little bit, too. There'll be a little more intense. Um, but I'm not sorry. Uh, God has been beating me up a little bit, and in a good way. And, uh, you know, we need this sometimes. We need this prodding and correction and, and, and direction from God so that we understand where our hearts are at all times. So this morning's message is titled, What Do You Treasure? What do you treasure? And I'm going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 6 and primarily focused on verses 19 through 24. But I'll break that down for you as we go. But as I was studying this, I came across a, a quote from John Piper. And it's actually from his, his book that I think we still might have a few left or we've sold here, Don't Waste Your Life. And it speaks to this very thing. He says, when the glory of God is the treasure of our lives, we will not lay up treasures on earth but spend them for the spread of his glory. We will not covet, but overflow with liberality. We will not crave the praise of men, but forget ourselves in praising God. We will not be mastered by sinful, sensual pleasures, but sever their root by the power of a superior promise. We will not nurse a wounded ego or cherish a grudge or nurture a vengeful spirit, but will hand over our cause to God and bless those who hate us. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. Let me say that last line again. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. See, in Matthew chapter 6, this is part of Jesus' famous Sermon of the Mount, which is one of five major discourses in the, in the book of Matthew. We just got done studying this and going through this as a group on Wednesday nights, and it was really good. You should be there. Little plug. But, uh, but, anyways, you know, in Matthew 6, Jesus brings up two big primary temptations that I believe we all face as believers and that distract us and pull us away from our walk with Jesus. First thing is religious man doing his works before man to receive the praise of man. Hear that again. Religious man doing his works before man to receive the praise of man, right? Instead of doing them for the approval and the glory of God. So this often comes through religious acts like charitable deeds, prayer, and fasting, according to Jesus. He visits these things throughout that entire sermon. But if you think of these things for a moment, you know, when Jesus says, you know, you do these deeds to be seen by men, whereas the right hand should not know what the left hand is doing. Right? He says, go and pray in your closets. You know, don't hold up these lofty prayers in public so that people can say, oh, what a holy man. Right? And then he says, 
you know, when you fast, take care of yourself. Don't make it look like you're fasting. Don't mess up your hair and dirty your face. You know, make this personal and private. It's an act of worship. It's an act of sacrifice. Right? So these things, as we know, in and of themselves are good spiritual disciplines. But Jesus points out in his Sermon on the Mount that the religious man does these things to be seen and even to impress others. None of us would ever do that, right? Right? All right, making sure you're here. Oh, I'm interactive. You're going to have to pay attention and talk to me, okay? Keeps me going. So a lot of times what ends up happening is, is this cold, dead religion that we've made it, this superficial thing that a lot of people have made it, especially in Western culture, right, is not at all what Jesus is calling us to, right? He's saying this is about something deeper. It's not about what people see or think of you so much as about what I see and think of you, where your heart is. And that's what we're going to get to. I think, you know, this whole message about what do you treasure could revolve around this secondary statement is, is that if Jesus is not the treasure of your heart, then he needs to be. And so Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, for am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? He says, am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant. I would not be a slave of Jesus Christ. And we understand what that means, right? When someone says, I'm a bond servant of Christ, where I'm a slave to Jesus, what that means is, is you know, it's not this part-time religion, right? It's not this even full-time, you know, Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week, which we give our jobs, a lot of us. No, this is a 24-7, 365 day a year worship. This is what God has called us to, right? So what he's saying is, is this is all about you coming to me and living for me. This is all about us living in light of the cross, all about us living in response to gratitude and cultivating that gratitude time and time again because we become ungrateful, don't we, sometimes? We become complacent, don't we? We can forget just how good God is, or we can forget how good he's been throughout our entire lives, and we're still praying for that next thing to happen. And so what God is saying is live today. Live in this moment of gratitude. Live for me now. Don't make this about this sort of superficial bumper sticker religion that many have. <clears throat> the second thing, that ta- this primary temptation that you hear about in the sermon is, is we're living like and sharing the same views the world does in seeking treasures on this earth. The church does this. We, the people of God, do this. See, too often we seek to find security and satisfaction in temporary things instead of seeking the abundant life that Jesus promises us. You know what? What happens is, 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 when we walk into the church, a new person walks into the church, a first time it walks into the church, it shouldn't be familiar. And I know we spend a lot of time trying to create or recreate almost something that caters to those worldly senses or comfortabilities, you know? But the reality is, is that Christianity is nothing like the world. And so we should never try to make it resemble that. Right? We are supposed to leverage ourselves on truth, uncompromised truth, so that when people come in here, their wigs are blown back a little bit. 
right? They're feeling a little confronted and challenged, but loved at the same time. Because we are all confronted by this truth. Whether it's your first day here or you've been coming for 50 years like Charlie back there. Just kidding, Charlie, wherever you go. My point is, is it's not bad to work hard, save money, and buy nice things. That's not what I'm up here trying to tell you. I'm not telling you to take a vow of poverty and sell all you have unless that's what God's calling you to. Unless that's what God's calling to you, you to do. See, we're talking about what sits on the throne of our hearts here. And that's what Jesus is addressing in this portion of Scripture. He's talking about what drives us. What is our why? What makes us get up every day? What drives us to do the right things? What gets us to work and to live the lives we do? Because that's going to dictate where our treasure is or reveal it. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart, because everything you do flows out of the heart. You see, both of these temptations that Jesus addresses, they reveal a heart that is focused on the temporal, a heart that is focused on the secular instead of the spiritual and sacred. See, last week I talked about the spiritual war that we all battle daily, right? How if we didn't recognize our carnal tendencies or the fact that we have a spiritual enemy that is like a roaring lion, roaring lion stalking its prey, and we are that prey, then we lose this war in every battle before they even begin. And I think that happens a lot, doesn't it? That we're, we're trying to fight a spiritual battle with carnal measures. I think when our hearts are set on earthly things, we aren't living in the light of our promise of eternal life, abiding in Christ or walking in the Spirit. And when that happens, we fall prey to the world and its perspectives. We become just like it. Our why becomes the same why as the unbeliever sitting next to us. We'll inadvertently create idols that become more important or just as important as our pursuit of faith and spiritual things, and that just doesn't work in Christianity. We can't serve two masters, and we'll read that in a minute. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Be transformed by this renewed mind in light of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has provided for us, what the cross has provided for us, what Jesus has done for us. Be transformed now by that. Don't conform anymore to the world around you that tells you this is okay, and that's okay, and this is acceptable, and that's acceptable. You know the truth now, Paul is saying. So now allow it to transform you so that you can become new, and so that the world can see my good and perfect and pleasing will lived out in your life as you live daily. There are a lot of things vying for our hearts, but none are more important than God himself. See, the Sermon on the Mount is also called the Kingdom Manifesto in some circles. 
And it's called this because it explains how we must live as kingdom citizens. But in order to live that way, what must happen first? We'll read in verse 21 that where our treasure is, our hearts will be also. And if we truly treasure our heavenly citizenship, then our hearts and lives will reflect that. That's what has to happen first if we're going to live as kingdom citizens. So let's bow and pray together for a moment before we dive in. Lord, we ask you to guide us here. Lord, as I speak, as your people listen, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take control here. That the words coming out of my mouth, Lord, would be from you. Lord, that your word would not come back void as you promised, and that hearts and lives would be changed in this moment, in this time that we have together. That we wouldn't just come and go again another Sunday without letting it impact us. Lord, that we wouldn't just learn a little bit more, God, but we would learn to live a little bit more like Jesus. So use this time, use your word, use your servant here in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I go through this portion of Scripture, I want us to consider three questions. And I want you to ask yourself these things throughout the week. That's my hope, is that it sticks with you. And those three questions are, what do I treasure? How is my vision? And who am I serving? What is my treasure? What do I treasure? What's my vision? How do I see things? And how is that leading me? And then who or what do I serve on a daily basis? Okay? So let's first look at this in verses 19 through 21 in Matthew chapter 6. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a, a very popular parable, and Pastor Brian, you know, refers to it a lot. And uh, he often says and it's the saddest story in the Bible. It's in chapter 19 of Matthew, and we're going to jump there now. I'm going to get right into it in verses 16 through 26. And it's the parable of the rich young ruler. And it says, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Just that question alone. What good thing must I do? What good religious deeds must I do in my strength and my might to obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you wish to enter into life, then you've got to keep the commandments. Simple enough, right? And then he says to him, which ones? That's his response. Keep the commandments. Jesus doesn't say keep some. He says keep the commandments. And then this guy's response is, well, which one should I keep, Jesus? And then so Jesus starts rattling off, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, 
Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished, and they said, well, then who can be saved? And he said, looking at them, with people, this is impossible. You can't save yourself. But with God, all things are possible. This young ruler's heart as we know, is controlled by wealth and riches, right? What's ironic is, is, you know, he's trying to find the the easy way that he can accomplish his eternal life, his, his salvation. And if you look and you understand what Jesus repeated back to him, he only repeated back commandments 5 through 10 of the 10 commandments, right? The outward acts of love. So this man was willing to love his neighbor and obey the commands that pertain to maybe his fellow man. But when it came down to loving the father and having no other gods before him, he's not willing to let go of wealth or the status he obtained here on earth in exchange for eternal life, which are the first four commandments. Love the Lord your God. There shall be no other gods beside me. Right, if you, if you look at when Jesus, I love how when Jesus is confronted by the religious experts of that day, right? They confront God, and they say, well, what's most important? They try to trick him or trap him. You tell me what commandments are the most important. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second's just like it. Love others as you love yourself. He basically boils down all the commandments into these two greatest commandments. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength, with every fiber of your being, then you're not going to create other gods to to fill his place. He will be your God. Right? And then if you start to love him at that level, if he becomes the treasure of your heart, then guess what ends up happening? You start to love other people radically too. You start to see beyond their faults. You start to recognize your own. Your pride starts to shrink. Humility starts to grow. People become more important. You start to realize your mission is to share the love of God with them. And so Jesus always directs it back to that because if we can get this right, if we can love him beyond all things, if we treasure him where we should, then guess what? Everything else works out. And that's what he pointed out with this rich young ruler. You're missing the first and most important part. You're a good religious man, but your wealth is more important to you. Your treasure's here on this earth. I wish I could say this was uncommon, that most Christian people didn't fall into living as the world does or just living out their Christianity in a way that allows for putting worldly pursuits first. But sadly, many live and practice their faith this way. People should be asking us when they encounter us or when they know us, they should be asking us about our hope, our inexplicable joy. It should be obvious and glaring to them, but often it isn't because we're hoping in the same things they are. There's no different. 
There's no difference, excuse me. And what happens is, is so if we're putting all our hope in our worldly pursuits and those things aren't going well, then we react accordingly, just the way the world does. But you find me someone who treasures God above all things, and when things are going horribly wrong in their lives, when, when the proverb, excuse me, proverbial poop hits the fan, I can't say the other word, you'll notice that they're unwavering, unshook. That they, they may mourn, they may have joy, and it may coexist at the same time. People should be asking us, why does nothing phase you? Why is it when, you know, sickness comes or death comes or tragedy or financial ruin or whatever it may be comes into your life that you still proclaim the name of your God? Why is it that you have this peace that doesn't make sense? Why is it you can still smile and have joy? That's the hope that they should see in us because he's our treasure. Ultimately, this entire story in Matthew is about the importance of loving God and loving others, as I said. And when we don't love God above all things, then it becomes impossible for us to see beyond the treasures of this life because we don't see him as the ultimate treasure of ours. And this doesn't just apply to material wealth. It can apply to anything that we pursue with more effort, energy, or passion than Jesus. Think about that for a moment, right? What drives me? What is my purpose? What is my why? Is it my kids? Is it my spouse? Is it my job? Is it my education? Is it keeping up with the Joneses? Is it getting that house? Is it a fulfillment of the American dream in some level? Is that your why? Is that where your treasure is? Jesus is telling you that none of these things will fulfill you the way I can. That that does not fulfill you and will not give you the abundant life that I promise. All those things can be lost in a moment. Every single one of them. But you can't lose him. When all else fails, when everything goes to ruin, we have a God who will never leave us or forsake us. We have a God who walks with us every step of the way. And we need to embrace that. I love in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, it explains the wealth we receive in Christ as opposed to the wealth we obtain in this life. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance, and I love this part, this is it, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." An inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven, it says. And there's no earthly treasure that can promise you or I any of these things. Think about that for a moment. We put all our hope and faith in things that will perish. 
Things that can be taken away from us that will fade away and all be ash at some point. And what happens when those things disappear? Do we lose hope? Or do we praise God? The treasure we have in Jesus far outweighs anything we can acquire, achieve, or accomplish in this life. And Jesus reminds us in verse 21 that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. So therefore, we must not only guard our hearts, but surely find a way that they are filled with the things of God, not the things of man. Fill them with the things of God, with worship, with prayer, with praise, with service, with community. Whatever it takes to keep you close to God, that's what you do. You fill your hearts and your lives with those things, and you will not fall away. Righteousness is a protection. It's a weapon. We talked about that last week. And so when we live righteously, when we pursue righteousness, we find peace. We find protection. So the second question was, is how is your vision? Right? Let's look at what, what Matthew writes here. In verses 22 through 23, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How great is that darkness? So I'm going to look at another parable with you. And this is the parable of the rich fool. And it's in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, if you're looking on or taking notes. And it goes like this. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells them this parable. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, What should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then God says to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I love that. Verse 15. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So many of us long for the day when we can sit back and enjoy our fortune. We've been saving up for retirement and take the path of easiness, right? Florida, golf, beaches, vacations, and so on. The American dream has told us that this is the purpose of your life. It's to work for an X amount of time, and save as much as you can, so that way, in your golden years, you don't have to work. You can relax for maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years if you're lucky, and play some golf and not have to do anything. And the reality is, is that this is not biblical. 
Not the retirement piece. You can retire. Okay. And I'm not here to sort of talk people out of retiring or saving. That's not what I'm saying here at all. What I'm trying to do is is I'm trying to help people see that the slow, comfortable slope many of us fall into, this American dream that we've been sold, doesn't necessarily line up with God's will for our lives. See, God has called us to put our hands to the plow. Every single breath that you draw is a gift from him. Every single heartbeat from the day you were born to the day you die, the day you're conceived till the day you die is a gift from him. And, I, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot more lately because of what's been going on in my family. You know, what, what am I pursuing? What is most important? Right, these gifts, these breaths that we have. You know, what ends up happening is, is we get to the end of our lives, right? And I'm sure as we're, we're gasping for those final breaths, there's probably a lot of regret for a lot of Christian people. You know, in those moments, we're full of prayer and hunger for the things of God because that's all that matters at that moment is the people around us and where we're headed. And there's probably this thought, man, I wish for the last umpteen years this is how I lived. Prayerfully. With God at the forefront and all of my relationships, the ones that he's blessed me with is a priority in my life. Not just then. When our vision isn't his vision, then we need to look at what we're pursuing and treasuring. What is it? Matthew, at the end of this chapter 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom and righteousness. Seek those things. Tomorrow's going to have plenty of problems. Focus on the day. Be present. Stop rushing through your lives. Stop thinking you need more. Stop thinking that, you know, you just got to get to this certain place and things are going to be greater or better or easier. That's not what this is about. We've been called into ministry, every single person in this room. Not those of us with titles. Not those of us who do this part or full time. No. Every single person in this room has influence and affluence of some sort. You have ears that are listening. Whether it's in your home, your workplace, the public, whatever. You think about that for a moment. That's the calling. That's the most important thing. You know, we sing that song, Amazing Grace. When we've been here 10,000 years, we've no less time to sing his praise than when we first arrived. Eternity is a long time. And if we don't look at this life through an eternal lens, what ends up happening is we sell ourselves short. And we lose. We lose purpose and meaning We lose the joy of serving God and living for him and making him our treasure and that abundant life that Jesus promises. In Matthew chapter 6, in these two verses that I read, Jesus uses this metaphor about 
the eye to explain that unhealthy vision will lead to unhealthy living. Makes sense, right? When we don't see things through an eternal, eternal biblical lens, then darkness is eventually going to creep in. The world is going to grab our eyes and ears. Sure, we'll find plenty of people to endorse the darkness and tell us we're seeing clearly, but unless it aligns with God's will for us, then it's simply darkness. We've lost right focus, and we need to repent. You know, I know this from a life of wrong living, that I could always find someone any time of the day or night that would co-sign my bad behavior. I could find someone any time of the day or night that could endorse my, my views, that could tell me, yeah, you're right. Don't listen to them. This is who you are. This is normal behavior, and so on. Because, you know, darkness loves darkness. And the world that does not understand or have any understanding of truth is going to keep telling you that their lies are okay. But, you know, Jesus and Paul and Peter, it was very simple what they said to the world of those who didn't believe. He said, repent and believe. He didn't just say, go out and go to church on Sundays. He didn't say, just go do some nice things for your neighbors. He said, you need to repent and believe and be saved. And a lot of times we don't talk about repentance the way or as much as we should. But the reality is, is if we don't stop living in sinful desire or in the flesh or pursuing the things of the world, then we're living in sin and there's no other ways around that. You know, there's this, I'll get around to it or I'm trying. Who says that? Anybody? I'll get to it. I'm trying to be better. Give me some time. We don't know if we have time. None of us in this room know if we'll even be here next Sunday. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to be real here with us. If we keep saying to ourselves, I'll get to it, I'm trying, and use that as you know, a, a, an instrument or a crutch to buy some time, then all we're doing is we're missing out on the call God has for our lives. All we're doing is, is stealing more grace from the cross. That's all we're doing. Repent and believe. Repent means, that's it, stop your trying, stop your tomorrows. In this moment, right now, you have an opportunity to start living the life that God has called you to and believe what he says, that his promises are true and the gospel redeems and saves and transforms and now you can live the life I've called you to and make me your treasure. Amen. That's what this is all about. You know, I was joking in the first service. I says, you know, sometimes people look and they go, oh, that's a little tough. You know, what about the first time? That's exactly what we need to hear. Right? If, if you know, we heard John the Baptist or, or Paul or Jesus preach in person, we'd be highly offended. We'd be highly offended. Because that's what they did is they went after your sin, because that's what keeps you from God, and because they love you, because they want to see you in right standing with the Heavenly Father who created you. 
They don't want to see you continuing to live in separation and in sin by trying to do better or putting it off till tomorrow. No, now is the time. David said, today is the day of salvation. And some of you in this room, you're probably in a place where you've never made that proclamation or you've teetered on it. Or you've sort of said, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because, you know, I go to church once in a while, or my family goes to church, or I grew up in this way. But we're not talking about cultural religious belief here. We're talking about a personal faith that requires us each to repent and believe. And so my prayer all morning has been that someone will hear that message today and repent and believe. That someone will come to know Jesus and proclaim him as their Lord and Savior. Because no matter what this world says and offers you in the way of comfort and elation and joy, it's a lie. The devil is a liar. And so if you want freedom, if you're looking for peace, if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for purpose and contentment, then guess what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nothing in this world will ever give you what he can. Church, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. So if our vision needs correction, then we need to allow God to search our hearts because a right heart will always yield right vision. The last question I wanted to ask was, is who are you serving? Who are you serving? In verse 24, it says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. We cannot serve two masters. I believe that this is probably the thesis statement for the entire Sermon of the Mount. Most of us are looking for a way to serve two masters. Right? We we may not want to put something above God, but we're going to allow it to compete with him. We're going to put more energy into that thing than we are him. And most of us are trying to find, just like the rich young ruler, the easy way out, how we can still keep doing the things we were doing and, and commit to God and, and reap those rewards. But the reality, the reality is, is that if God is not the sole Lord of our lives, then we're slaves to idolatry and our hearts are not his. Paul says this in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For those for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them garbage, all loss, that I may gain Christ. Right? What's he talking about? Right? When we see Paul writing, we see Paul writing that in a way that we know he was serving one master. There was no denying that. If you look at his life and you look at his writing, he had one master, and that master was Jesus Christ and Christ alone, as we sang. Right? Paul's pedigree and accomplishments would have been impressive to his audience, but he was explaining to them that none of those things mattered in light of knowing and gaining Christ. Paul had what a lot of people pursue, success in this life. He was educated, he had prestige, he had respect and a good reputation amongst his people. He was a Hebrew amongst Hebrew, born in the right lineage. He had it all, Roman citizen, you name it. 
And what ends up happening is, is he has an encounter with Jesus. And when he has that encounter with Jesus, he says, all those things become garbage in that moment. That he realizes that in gaining Christ and knowing Jesus, he, he realizes that those things mean nothing in the scope of eternity. That's what that scripture means. It's all garbage. It's all rubbish. We was joking with my family yesterday. There was someone, one of them, I won't say who, the cocky one, sent a screenshot of their credit score, to which I stupidly responded with my screenshot. <laughs> yes, I'm a jerk, and I'm prideful. <clears throat> and it was funny, and then, you know, they went back and forth, and it was like, well, at least we all have good credit now. It was a time when that wasn't the case. And I said, yeah, I says, and what good is it really? I mean, obviously, I need it for certain things, but I'm it's, more, it's not as important for me to have the highest credit score in the graveyard, you know? What does that matter at the end, right? It's great that we've all pursued this and tried to fix this thing in our life and make it better, but the reality of this is, is that it's, if we pursue Jesus as much as we pursue these things, man, imagine what our lives would look like. Imagine. We have to ask ourselves if we're at a place where we're willing to throw away all of our accomplishments, reputations, and status for the sake of knowing and following Jesus. I don't think Scripture tells us this is something we all have to do, right? Throw away these things. But if we're in a place where we wouldn't even consider walking away from the life we've created or the things we've earned for the sake of the gospel or to respond to the call of God in our lives, then we're not only storing up earthly treasures, but our, we love our idols more than we love our God. And that's something we have to come to terms with. We have to be willing to give it all up in a moment, all of it, for the sake of the gospel. We can't be holding so tightly to these things that when God calls us or he, he really impresses something upon our hearts that we're like, no, I'm sorry, that's just off limits to you, Jesus. Whatever that looks like, relationship, money, I don't care what it is. Nothing should be held tighter than Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says it very clearly. He say, it says, they, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with all his angels. Boy, that was Jesus. That's not just someone trying to be tough. That's Jesus speaking truth. And Jesus is calling us to this radical life of service to him as our master. He tells us there's a cost to following him. So we must count that cost and be willing to pay whatever it is to be found in him. That's the reality. Jesus calls his disciples to take up his cross in order to follow him. And this is where comfortable, casual religion falls way short. Way short. Nominal belief doesn't cut it in Jesus' eyes. He talks about lukewarm Christianity in the book of Revelation. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. 
Be cold or hot. Don't, don't come at me lukewarm. Don't come at me with one foot in the world and one foot, you know, in my direction. All or nothing. That's what Jesus wants from us. And he calls us to this intimate, sacrificial relationship with him, not to a safe, comfortable seat on Sundays. Carrying a cross just isn't comfortable, church. It's not supposed to be. But it's rewarding. And it's good. And more important than that, how it makes us feel, is that it glorifies our Heavenly Father. That it shows people what this is all about. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Church, we have to constantly ask ourselves these questions and be honest with our answers. What do I treasure? How is my vision? And who am I serving? Ask yourselves these things every day, all week, for the rest of this week, or the rest of your lives. Because in that, as you gauge those things, you'll start to know where your heart is and where you need to surrender to God. See, I don't believe God is condemning us for being wealthy or rich. The question is, is are you serving those things and committing idolatry by having them be your gods? That's what you have to ask yourselves. How much time have they stolen from you and Jesus? How much time have you committed to them in comparison to your God, to your Savior? Money isn't bad. It's the love of money that it's the problem. See, it says in, in 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We have a choice in this moment and the moments going forward. We can fall into a comfortable, hollow, religious life. We can treasure things that culture tells us to treasure, or we can run our race. Like Paul we can say, I will not waste my life. I will finish my course and finish it well, and I will display my gratitude for the grace of God in all that I do, and I will run my race to the very end. We have so many reasons to be thankful, even in our sorrow. We have so many things to thank God for. So I'm going to ask you to stand up now and worship him. <laughs>